Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. We're living in a time of whole systems transition on a personal and a planetary scale, and it affects every aspect of life as we know it. Patterns of possibility are emerging that have never before been available on our planet, and millions of individuals and organizations are self-organizing to actively make a better world. Technological innovations and collective wisdom have created unprecedented opportunities for change. The new science of consciousness is revolutionary, revolutionizing our worldview, and the interdependence of all life has now been established as a scientific fact. So now what? Nearly half the population can barely eke out an existence, says our guest. So what's missing? We're going to find out today. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. I invite you to take a few deep breaths. Bring your awareness into this moment. Open your mind. Connect with your heart. And settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest. Trained as a physician and epidemiologist, Dr. Monica Sharma worked for the United Nations from 1988 to 2010. As Director of Leadership and Capacity Development at the United Nations, she designed and facilitated programs for whole systems transformation and leadership development throughout the world with measurable results. Currently, as an international expert and practitioner on leadership development for sustainable change, she continues to assist the United Nations, as well as universities, management institutions, governments, business, media, and other organizations. She designs and directs large programs globally and has lived and worked in both developing and developed countries. For example, she established and implemented programs in 40 countries to prevent and treat HIV-AIDS and pioneered the strategy for whole systems transformation to reduce maternal mortality in South Asia. She received the Spirit of the United Nations Award in recognition of her contributions. Dr. Sharma created and uses a unique response model based on extensive application, a conscious full-spectrum model which simultaneously in time solves problems, shifts systems, and creates new patterns sourced from individual inner capacity and transformational leadership. This model has generated sustainable results worldwide. I am so honored and blessed to have Dr. Sharma here with us today. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here and to be speaking to you. Oh, thank you. It is a pleasure to have you here. And and the list of questions that I have is so long because you are demonstrating sustainable change. And I just love that. But we got to start with our traditional question here on our show. We have a, a perennial question that I like to ask to start us off to really set the tone in, in this meme. So I'm going to start off by asking you, Dr. Sharma, what does all things connected mean to you? To me, all things connected has three meanings. 
expressed that deep down within, we are really one. We've always known that. And that space of oneness is a space where we resonate with one another. So that is a space that I think is about our connection. Secondly, in the world of systems, norms, culture, we have a paradigm now, we always did, but now it's known and now it's valued. That is the paradigm of interdependence. And this just says, that whatever I do has an impact on someone else, on all sentient beings, on the planet. So that too, for me, is about connection. And the third dimension of connection, which we often don't explore, is that connection without a deep value base is simply connection. So there are a lot of people who are connected, and they may not be striving to see a better future. They are connected because they, for example, may wish to use more fossil fuels. They are connected because they want to be able to promote a particular idea of theirs. They are connected because they want to promote a particular way of looking at financing, for example. So connection for me, the third dimension, is one that is based on universal values that we hold deeply. Values such as compassion, and I use the word universal values, where no one is left out anywhere. So values such as compassion, values such as dignity for all. Because like Martin Luther King said, you know, when I am able to see that I am who I am, simply because you are who you are. That space of dignity where no one is left out. Fairness, that we each have a right, a right to fairness on this world. So sort of burning for that. So for me, this connection has three domains. One, that is more of our oneness. Secondly, that of interdependence. And thirdly, connection that is based on values that are universal where no one is left out anywhere. Mm. Wow, Monica, you know, I get a lot of responses on this program um, over the years, and the third one is really fascinating, talking about connection with universal values and those that are connected without that, and wow, that really changes the whole conversation. I'm, wow. You know, you've spent a lifetime, a a beautiful career with the United Nations, and you have been a leader on the front lines, really helping to to teach and to lead. And now you're really working and mentoring with, with other leaders and helping make a difference in even a greater way. It's almost like I remember a, a student of mine once said, you don't have to go change the world. You just have to influence your 100 people that you know, and they'll go out and influence their 100 people. So I love that about you. But why don't we tell your story first? How, how did you, Dr. Sharma, you're, you're a medical doctor, an epidemiologist, how did you end up with the United Nations? And 
Tell us a little bit about that career. Um, Julie, I wish I could say that I planned it, but I didn't. It just happened. So firstly, as a medical doctor, I've been in touch with pain and dying and and all that all physicians and you know are in touch with. So there's a space in this profession, like many others, like teaching, like law, that opens one's heart in a way that is, you know, very, very deeply um, energizing, very deeply meaningful. Um, I had worked for seven years in a national policy institute in India, the National Institute of Health and Family Welfare, where we supported the the highest level of government and ministers to work on new policies, and I was working on health and nutrition. And I also worked at grassroots, literally with traditional birth attendants in villages. So I loved that spectrum of engagement across, because for me, this kind of work is not about levels of leadership. This kind of work is about being able to source one's greatness to make a change. I had been there for seven years, Mm -hmm. and I was um, conducting sessions, and I was working on, um, you know, doing applied research on various topics, and I also used to guide um, the thesis work of people who were getting their community health administration degree. And I figured I was like seven to eight years in that um, institution. I had given my best and I learned a lot. And there's a time when I felt I was open for new challenges and just to energize myself, not as a reaction to the space, but rather as a way of moving on. And so I made 30 copies of my CV, distributed it in the institutions that I would like to work with a note. I got called in 10 of them and interviewed, and I got a job in three of them. And then I was out on a field visit in the villages where I was doing a study, and one of my students saw an advertisement in the newspaper um, about a job in UNICEF. And since I was not there, he took a copy of my CV, put a phone number and said, she may be appropriate. And I got a call, I was interviewed, and I landed there. Hmm. Wow. So, so then, let's talk about your career, because you literally have really made significant systemic changes. And, you know, coming from a medical model, and I don't know how that is in India, but um, really understanding things from such a global universal perspective and making systemic change isn't easy. And I, I love what you just said, forcing one's greatness to make change. So how did you then go from the job at UNICEF to really all the work that you've done with this systemic change and transformation. So I'll backtrack and I'll say that while I was working in one of India's major institutions, that's the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, um, I worked on a project on tuberculosis and tubercular lymphadenitis and it was in the pediatric surgery department and I was so much in touch with the families that came and, and brought their children or basically children and then go back and find out more about it. 
And it's from that space that I started connecting the world of medicine to the world of public health to the world of social change and indeed economic change. So it set a tone for me to be in, the, in UNICEF. And at UNICEF, I was the head of health. And that was a time when UNICEF's executive director, Mr. James Grant, was mobilizing the world towards achieving results, achieving results in child survival. And he had immunization as its uh, major program to sort of pull the rest of child survival up for the world. And by the way, Julie, a recent survey shows that because of the work that all of us did, just not me, uh, because I was subsequently the advisor to Mr. Grant on child survival in New York for the entire world, but it wasn't me alone. It was a large number of us. We've had, we've had huge success. Uh, the surveys show that there's some 90 million children around the world who live because of that effort, who mm. didn't die because of that effort. And that's huge. So mm. when I was in India and Mr. Grant came and said, well, how are you going to make a, a difference in this short time of three years where the immunization coverage is 30% and we need it to 80 And of course, as you know, Julie, I mean, India and China have the largest number of babies. I mean, India produces like 25 million babies at that time. And as you know, if India and China don't make it, the global denominator will not, you know, will not be able to hold a change uh, for the world. And we made 80%. And we made 80%. I did an extrapolation based on epidemiology and stuff where I said, you know, if we did X, we would reach 60. And if we did Y, we would reach 70. And if we did Z, we would go to 80. That Z was the one that really worked. And I had fabulous supervisors and people. So the, the key to that was mobilizing the 450 staff of UNICEF to go and serve in the field, whether they were from the accounts division or whether they were from the, the program divisions. And usually in large organizations, we think just the field people make a difference. But we mobilized our entire staff once a month to go and serve. And then Daniel Goldman and Annie McKee wrote about this in a book called Primal Leadership and said I was a leader. And, you know, I did that intuitively. And because I believe in human beings' power, even while I was in NIHFW, I worked that way you know, resting on what people can contribute rather than telling them what to do all the time. Of course, we need standards. Of course, we need clinical and public health standards. So that's when I realized that this made a huge difference. 20 years, um, yeah, almost 20 years down the road, 15 years down the road, they did a survey, and they found that the staff, they did a staff as if satisfaction survey, and they, the staff said that was one of the best periods of their life at work, simply because there is nothing more deeply satisfying at work than being able to contribute. Mm -hmm. You know, they say in the U.S., for example, 50% of people 
dislike their jobs intensely. So being able to transform one's workplace into a place that is at once useful to society and deeply um, grounded in who I am, what I stand for, uh, the patterns I wish to change, the norms I wish to change, is very, very powerful. Mm. Subsequent so, to that, I used the same kind but of methods when I was directing the South Asian Maternal Mortality Reduction Program or when I was the Global Director for HIV and AIDS in the United Nations Development Program or whether I worked in child survival in the headquarters of UNICEF. So there's something about combining, Julie, the ability for every human being to get in touch with who they are and then be able to see the patterns that inhibit what results we could produce because we as human beings have a pattern mind and to be able to activate that space so that whatever we do is part of shifting the the pattern that exists today and is grounded in, in my inner strength. And it's the combination of these three things, being able to source one's inner power, being able to see and create alternatives, and being able to commit to results. Because in that commitment, people stretch. Without that commitment to results, we usually remain in our comfort zone. Mm. Yeah, and so, wow. When I, when I hear that, I'm thinking about the intro for our program today and, and thinking about, so all of these resources are emerging. We now have the ability on the planet to connect almost instantaneously with almost everyone on the planet. Two weeks ago, I think one billion people logged on to Facebook on the same day. That's one-seventh of the population. So here we have all these emerging resources, and what I'm hearing underneath is what you say is missing. So what is missing when we're talking about leaders really coming into alignment with who they are and serving a greater good? What's the missing piece? What are we missing? So to me, I'll go back to the first thing on connection, Julie. It is not about connecting. I mean, we also know that the Internet today, in essence, also connects for childhood pornography. So to me, it's not connecting. It's connecting Mm -hmm. for what? Mm -hmm. Connecting with what values? Connecting to create what kind of future? Connecting to share what I'm in action with? So I think you're absolutely right when you say we have huge opportunities. We have opportunities we didn't have before. We have technology that, that exceeds, in, a, in fact, it exceeds our capacity of being human. We have technologies to destroy. We have technologies to support life. We have technologies to nurture the planet. We have technologies we are using right today that is not enhancing the way the planet is. It's, in fact, destroying the planet. So it's not, we have technology like never before. We have connectivity as never before. So the big piece that I feel that's missing is being able to activate the innate qualities that we have and not to be 
driven by this fear of survival or, you know, a scarcity mindset that if I share, I won't have. In fact, Mother Earth is abundant. We have everything that we may possibly need. But when it's like Gandhi says, you know, we have everything we need for, for human beings' needs. We have everything, but not for everyone's greed. So I think that what's missing is being able to really get in touch with one's inner oneness and connectedness, and from there to be able to have the courage to create differently. Because challenging and transforming systems and cultures that are imbued with power dynamics that are external, that are part of our innate dominating character um, is not easy because when we succeed, people are not clapping for this because we are rattling the power base. So that's part of it. And yet there is something profound that people who are in, you know, places of formal power and extrinsic power, when they touch that inner core, they too unfold differently. So what's missing for me is a rigorous, results-oriented engagement in consciousness that really allows interdependence to be the part of the new paradigm. Mm. Wow, I just pause to really, really allow that to sink in because it's really brilliant and you know a lot of our leaders are talking about connectivity but we're really not bringing those the, that innate quality into the conversation of really it's a, it's shared values and shared vision we really need to connect in the place of shared values and shared vision is what i'm hearing you say i agree with you julie it is shared values it is a shared vision but it's also the ability to stand alone. We had a mm. beautiful freedom song in India. It's called Akla Cholore. And basically what Rabindranath Tagore wrote, who's a Nobel laureate, um, he said, you know, when, when we burn for something and we walk, if nobody joins us, we've got to have the courage to walk alone, not because I want to be exclusionary, but because I know in my inner space, I know that we are one and that we can move differently. So the ability to do both and, the ability to stand when everyone ridicules, as we know in the beginning stages of change, um, that is how it is. No, people ridicule, mm -hmm. then they are angry, and then when we succeed, they say, ah, but we did it together. And these are just the normal ways human beings maintain status quo, no big deal. But we need to understand that in order that we affect change. You know, the, we just have a few minutes before the break, and I, I just want to um, really look at, when we come back, what is a transformational leader and, and how do we inspire and maybe 
I love the the term force one's greatness. I'm I'm not about force, but I'm curious to hear what you you say about that. Uh-huh. But in the meantime, you know, there's this um really this integral response to our crisis on the planet that does bring us together and the point that I'm hearing that I think is really worth repeating here before we go to break is that we can share the values, we can share the vision, but it's really important that we move forward with that inner alignment, that inner source um, moving us into action from that wisdom that we have, that this is ours to do, whether we do it together or not. Because I have a feeling, and I'm, I'm curious about your response to this, once leaders step into action and move forward, it does begin to attract the resources and the people and everything that they need to be successful. Do you find that? Yeah. Um, did I use the word force, um, Julie? I, if I did, that's not what I meant. The, the right word for greatness is allowing my greatness to unfold. So thank mm-hmm. you for pointing that out. It's not about force. It's about sourcing one's greatness. It's about sourcing. That's the word that, that you use. Yes. Yeah. So sourcing. It's not about force. It's about unfolding. Um, yeah. I completely agree. And if we have shared values, we have shared vision, then I think there's a new paradigm of transformational leadership that's about sharing space. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we come back, we will look at that. Excellent. Yes, you said source one's greatness to make change. I love that. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, more with Dr. Monica Sharma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right, around right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Here, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself and her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night. And feel unstuck. Because she'd finally hear someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and ducks, ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you, the enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. 
Zawul. The free to be me, you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not so far away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Before there were computer games and HDTV, cram courses and teaching to the test, there was this thing called imagination. A tool so powerful, it could transport kids on the most amazing journeys of their lives. From outer space to center field at Yankee Stadium. It is for these journeys that Destination Imagination was created. An extraordinary after-school program in creativity and teamwork for every child. At Destination Imagination, teams are formed and challenges are met with a whole lot of imagination. And while we can't guarantee it'll get your kid into Harvard or onto American Idol, we're pretty sure that Destination Imagination will be the most important journey they make this year. Maybe any year. Parents, teachers... Start a Destination Imagination team by calling 888-321-1503 or visit DestinationImagination.org. That's DestinationImagination.org. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. We're back on the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. My guest today is Dr. Monica Sharma, who spent over 22 years with the United Nations. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to today, want to share it with a friend or listen to it again, go to thedrjulieshow.com where you can find all the archives and upcoming guests or empowerradio.net and stay connected all week on our Facebook page where we continue the conversation. So, Dr. Sharma, right before break, we were talking about sourcing one's greatness to make change. And you talk a lot um, in articles that I've read and um, articles that other people have written about you that an important quality of transformational leadership is sourcing action from wisdom. And I would love to hear you speak about that. What does that really mean, sourcing action from wisdom and sourcing one's greatness to make change? In essence, Julie, this space is wordless, you know, cannot give words to that. It's our own essence. Mm -hmm. And um, in communities that are spiritual, they call it wisdom. When I'm working in in, um, a management institute, they'll call it full potential. Uh, For others, there are numbers of leadership programs where they call it possibility so this space, in essence, cannot be put into words. It, but, you know, as human beings, we need words so that we can communicate. So the first thing is to be able to discover, and the word is discover, who I am. And who I am as essence. And there are many ways to do it. And once I know who I am, what I stand for, or what I wish to manifest, who I am, then I can source that greatness. But if I cannot put something tangible to it, the mind finds it difficult because the mind will then be able to look at that essence more as an energetic force, which it is, and I don't mean force as in force, but it's an energetic um, element in us. So this energy, who I am, is the space I resonate with you, 
with everyone else as you do with me. It's like Rumi says, you know, can I meet you in that field where there is no each and other? So to me, this space, knowing what that is, creates a second thing. One is knowing. The second is to be able to manifest. And what we know is when we can tap into who I am, what I deeply care about, what I deeply care about, then whatever action I take, whatever norms I shift, whatever cultural aspects I deal with is actually an expression of who I am. So I have profound peace, inner peace and alignment in my actions. I don't see any difference between doing and being. Many philosophers distinguish that, like, you know, don't do. Um, be, be, go slow. For me, it isn't slow. It is a space of stillness. The ability I have to tap into my greatness and source it for action where I want to make a difference. And so to me, it's not the I of ego, but it is the I where I am able to share who I am with everyone else. And so we have at least 30 ways of creating bridges from what is called this non-dual space, the space of oneness. And how do I create a bridge into the dual world where I act? From the moment I get up, I am in this dual world. When I drink my first cup of coffee, I've had that coffee picked by some maybe plantation workers somewhere on the planet, and who knows what it meant for them. So I am in that dual world. The moment I get up, and how do I deal with that dual world differently when I source my own inner greatness? And a couple of thoughts on that, Julie. One is that I'm not attached to my position what are my opinions? I'm not attached to my opinions like it defines me. I'm able to read, look at my points of view from this space of universal values, of dignity, of, of compassion, of fairness for all. So I'm able to source that and not get attached to my point of view as if it defines me. I also don't get attached to my, you know, who I am, like, you know, what nation was I born in? Um, we, are, we are all proud of being whatever nation we were born in. But when that becomes a mechanism for exclusion, then I'm unable to really relate, you know, with oneness, with inclusion. Similarly for religion, nothing wrong with religion. In fact, I think faith is a big anchor and stabilizer it's when we become religious in a way that every other religion is not okay. So all these things, when, I, when I'm able to source my greatness, I'm proud of who I am, whether what nation, whether I'm a woman or a man, or whether I am transgender, or whether I am um, whatever faith I follow, whatever language I speak. And whether I have a family or I'm single, it doesn't matter because I hold that with embrace. But I don't hold that 
as a defining characteristic for which I'm willing to kill, hate, or do exclude. And I think that's what it means when I'm able to source my greatness, when I'm able to source my universal values. So I'd say greatness is when I can tap into my own universal values. I walk in life. I create alternatives totally differently, not attached and defined by what you know, are more social profiles or the money I have or the material wealth I have. Not to say that's right or wrong, but I'm not attached to it, as if it defines who I really am. Mm. So I'm, I'm sitting here shaking my head and smiling and shaking my head, just thinking, yes, yes, yes. You know, this is important, and we do have a lot of leaders that listen to our program. Many, many people on the planet who are feeling the call to to evolve consciously and to make a difference on the planet. Many of those leaders listen to our program. What would you say to them? Because what we're talking about, this personal transformation leading to planetary transformation and really empowering everyone to step into that inner greatness. And and a lot of people will say, well, we don't have enough connections or status or money or funding or, you know, whatever that is. And what, how would you coach them? How do, how do we move into our greatness and really make a difference? So I'll begin by sharing because I am a practitioner. So I'll share five things that may be useful. And the first thing I would share is that it's another kind of leadership. This is not about the Nelson Mandela's and the Mahatma Gandhi's. This is about the Rosa Parks, the people like who Mm. you and I are, Julie, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I think that the whole notion of leadership is different now. It's not about formal leadership, though, yes, that gives us more influence. But it's about knowing I am a leader and that I can cultivate that. So that's the first. To be able to look at myself as leading something different. The second thing I want to say is that it is no longer about how great and big is my project. How much, you know, reach do I have? This is about being strategic. And what we know is that if I'm able to design strategically, I'm able to source my greatness, I'm able to solve problems differently, I am making a huge difference. Because in this, this is not about global reach in terms of numbers. This is about global reach in terms of strategic change. And I think... Every transformational leader needs to be able to see it's not how big or how small. It is how strategic is my work. So then I go to what is this strategic work? This strategic work is putting processes in place, whether those processes are about who I am and my own leadership development, whether those processes are about the information I need to make informed decisions, whether those processes are about the policies that need to be in place, 
whether those are about supporting those who take risk and stretch. So there are many processes which we always put in place. In these processes, I do it differently. And I design differently. So it's not about doing different things. It's about doing the same things differently. So what's strategic and different? Do I know how to source my wisdom or my full potential or my creativity in a way that I'm able to manifest change in an interdependent fashion? where I'm able to manifest change based on those universal values in order that I solve tangible problems. So that's what is strategic. And it doesn't matter what door I enter the cathedral from or what door I enter, the, what gate I enter this magnificent uh, park from. It doesn't matter if there are 100 gates to this and there's a beautiful park that holds all sentient beings, I can enter through any gate. So it doesn't matter what topic. This work is subject agnostic, means that I can apply it to anything. So that's the third thing I wish to say. The fourth thing I wish to say is that I need to know whether I'm able to renew myself, whether I am stuck in my past successes, because usually people are always talk about my experience. And nothing wrong with that, but what worked yesterday may not be the way to go tomorrow. So it's not like I let go of what's yesterday, but that I know how to renew myself, that I'm able to hold what works, but I have the wisdom to alter my point of view when I need to. So renewal is a huge feature. And the last point I want to make is that do I know how to foster other people's greatness? It means that sometimes I step up and lead an initiative or a project or, a pro and, or a, the solution to a problem. But do I also have the ability to support somebody else simultaneously as they lead? And this construct of shared leadership very much the way the Occupy movement wanted to talk about leadership, is about creating shared space to lead. Sometimes I step up and lead, and I for sure make space and time to support others to lead. And these are five things that have stood me in very good, you know, throughout my work, has, have been very useful, Julie, and so I say this out of my experience and noticing the hundreds of people I've worked with who all manifest these shifts. Mm. Thank you. You know, I'm just going to rephrase one piece that you had that's really simple advice um, is do the same thing differently. A lot of people wait around for a different system, a different structure, a, a new initiative. So they're like, you know, really banging their heads to bring in the new. And, and when you just really sit back and say, oh, how can I do the same thing differently? That gives it a contextual richness that gives you unlimited possibilities. 
Beautiful. Thank you. You said it so well, Julie. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that, too. So so here we are, and and talking about leaders, and these this is really good advice. So thank you for, for those five points. And I'm just wondering... Um, is this about grassroots or is this about corporate restructuring and restructuring our big systems? We've got both ends here, and I'm curious what your opinion is about that. Um, are we, do we need to create the systems that, that come top down, or do we need to really empower leaders from the grassroots up? So it's neither top down or bottom up. It's about inside out. And what we have always done in our work is to have multi-level, which means that we have people from grassroots, people from who are managers, and people who are in, in um, you know, policymaking um, levels. And we've had them in the same space. We've also done one thing more. So this is not about business leaders or government leaders or NGOs. This is about everybody. So we don't have the time today, Julie, but there are business leaders I've worked with that have used these techniques and made profound changes. And, and uh, to me, we've had people from government. We've had people from civil society. We've had grassroots leaders. We've had councils of ministers that have all used this because this is not about level. And then people say, but, you know, how can I, you know, there's urgency we even have done an analysis that actually this kind of work saves time because it saves time because, um, you know what, people are building teams in a different way. People are able to work cross-culturally in a different way. People are able to uh, deal with their problems and their opinions, which are valuable, but sometimes stand in the way and, and obstruct you know, our agenda for moving, they are able to look at that differently. And I think that that ability is is huge. So, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Inside out. Again, that's that's moving us all to source our greatness and, and make the change in all levels. I, I really thank you. That's, that's beautiful. So what is your, <laughs> Dr. Sharma, what is your vision? What is, what is a culture of peace look like Julie, you in can our call future. Me Monica, Dr. Sharma seems so formal. <laughs> okay, Monica. Yeah, I should is, have said what that is a, before. Yeah. Yeah. What does a culture of peace look like? What's your vision? So for me, um, culture of peace is not the absence of war. Culture of peace is being able to source who I am such that I practice inclusion that I'm able to hold different points of view, not as a personal attack, but as a way of being able to create a new future. I think the culture of peace is about being able to handle, it, handle conflict, whether that's at family level, in a society, between nations, being able to handle differences and conflict as a source of being able to create something new, rather than a destructive force that I have to defend. So I think it's about putting in practice many of the ways in which we are able to deal with, um, with our differences. And lastly, I would like to quote, uh, you know, I was working in, 
with a group in a country and with the first peoples of that country. And they said, you know, the concept of peace that has been unleashed is very much a concept that is from people who have everything they need. But for people who don't have everything they need, that are on the receiving end of injustices, that are on the receiving end of unfairness, that are on the receiving end of rhetoric called equal opportunity, then I, I think peace, they said, is, is about fairness. Without fairness, there is no peace. Without dignity for all, there is no peace. So peace is a very profound state of inner equanimity that is expressed with courage to be able to challenge what's not working such that inner peace is also manifest in external peace. Mm. Well, that reminds me of the park with all the gates and when it doesn't matter where we enter from there. If, if we're not talking, if we're really talking about this inner peace, it's, it's a really important thing. I read an article where you talked about the arts and you really talked about the importance of the arts in all of this transformational leadership and, and where we're going on the planet. Can you speak about the arts a little bit? Um, to me, the arts, whether that is performing arts or, you know, visual arts, is such a creative space. And I will speak about the experience. So when we began our work um, with other partners on the HIV-AIDS epidemic around the world, the way in which a woman who was affected by HIV or AIDS was portrayed was one with her head hanging down, in the visual arts, as if it was shame, as if it was something that was not okay. And um, so we invited artists, because artists create new paradigms, and I'll share a couple of those with you. So there are songs in every culture, including in the U.S., that don't portray women or men or in a way that is really dignified or films that don't portray women or men in a way that's dignified. It sort of commodifies people. So we had them come and they said, oh, we'll bring our art. And we said, no, no, you just come. They said, then why are you inviting us? But say we are inviting you because deep down you're a human being before you're an artist, which is your creative space. So they came in. They were willing to accept the challenge and they came in. And, I, and we went through this process that we usually do inviting them to explore who they are, looking at the paradigms that shifted, and asking them to recreate something. And I still remember this beautiful Tigrain woman in Ethiopia stand up with a rap song, which she created on the spot, which says, you know, it was about women. And the songs used to be about women planting and women singing about being in the kitchen. And she reinvented the song to say women could be everywhere. And then there was this um, a man who ran a, a, a restaurant called House of Fire in uh, Swaziland and all of Southern Africa. We had people come over. And um, he invented a, a song that had to do with, I'm a snake and you human being, 
Just look at the pattern on my back and you kill me. But don't you know I'm harmless? So this was about patterns. And, and the, the way in which they portrayed in their paintings people who were living with HIV, it transformed what was going on. There was one about nurturing men, and that was my all-time favorite, um, which was about a professor rewrote what it means to be a nurturing man, because worldwide, the macho man is what we look at. And, you know, what does it mean to be nurturing? And he began by saying, if we could cry like our mothers and break open our hearts, we would not kill. And, you know, the whole room of 200 people were in tears when he stood up and, and reinvented this space. So for me, they have this huge imagination to reinvent. But when they reinvent from this knowing who I am, the patterns I need to change, the, the cultural norms that disempower groups of people, the cultural norms that have us destroy the planet, then they can also reinvent the songs, the paintings, the, the dance, the music. So it's very enriching. I believe they still sing that rap song in Addis. <laughs> oh, those are beautiful stories. That's a real live example of really how the arts can touch people. So thank you for that. That's delightful. Monica, it has been such a delight to have you with us today. I really want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and, and your greatness with all of our listeners here today. Thank you, too, Julie, for creating this opportunity and for having you ask these profound questions, because they say that a great question is much better than 50 stupid responses. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I, I'll accept that and um, just revel in our conversation, because I have several things written down and really good advice and I think it's worth sharing over and over and over again so thank you so much and we're out of time so thank you again and thank you listeners for tuning in we'll see you right back here next week bye bye